Hello folks and welcome to the Comedy Corner here on Coast Access Radio 104.7 FM. My name is Graham Stevens and I really hope that I can bring a smile to your face. Hello there and welcome back. Today... Episode 6 in the history of radio comedy. And that's followed by an episode of Round the Horn. We present Wilfred Pickles as ex-Corporal Wilf. This is the 16th programme in which we've followed him as he finds his way back into the post-war world. For him and for his friends, this has been a week of crisis, and the trouble was started by his wife. Here's how it happened. A Yorkshire actor and sometime wartime newsreader goes into character comedy. Like almost everyone else at the time, he's in a show that'll prove a stepping stone to better things. Thanks, lads. That were Harry Hunt Flute and Ernie Hunt Drum, rendering their well-known masterpiece, Entrance of Ex-Corporal Wilf Schofield. Ah, that's me. How do? How are you? Greatly, thanks. Those words in just a few years would be Wilfred Pickles' personal call sign in his really famous show, Have a Go, offering another spot of homely fun, bringing the people to the people. But ex-Corporal Wilf's aim in life seems to have been to prevent the people from fomenting revolution. I don't understand what it's for. What is this here housewife's committee? Well, it's, um, it's all about the dry days. We haven't decided what to do about it yet. We're having a meeting. And that's why I shan't be cooking your dinner today. Oh, we might have a demonstration. You might what? Yes, if we can get enough stuff to make a banner, we might all march up to town and demand... Now, look that... here. You're not for making an exhibition of yourself. Now, we're not put to for brass. The country is the main. And we've not got a lot of credit in the shops abroad, like. We've got to go easy on buying stuff outside till we've sold some of our own. But I don't see Shut why up, that... will you, will you? Shut up. If you want more dried eggs, you'll have to go without something else that comes across the water. Oh, I see. Ah. Well, now, what's the point of making a blinking banner? If you want more dried eggs, you'll have to put down somewhat else like, well, tobacco or... Tobacco, eh? Would that do it? Well, what might help? Oh, I see. Here, Wilfrey, why don't you come to the meeting and explain all about it to the other housewives? Well, I'm not putting my nose into your cackling end party. But it would help. Now, be homage. You go to your meeting. I'm going with it a bit of sense talk. And where's that? To the White Swan. They'll just be open. Yes, yes, male chauvinism and conservatism being dispensed with a heavy propagandistic hand in 1946, presumably to discourage the public, who'd already voted in a socialist government, from doing anything yet more drastic. But half the country was still in uniform anyway, or at least in a uniformed state of mind. Hence the very barrack room humour of, among others, Charlie Chester's Stand Easy. Oh, there you are. Hello, Edwina, what's new? There's a man outside says he wants to see you. Must see me? Okay, let him in. I do. Oh, now, what can I do for you? Well, now, I represent the Federation of the Fellowship of Friendly Society of Full-Time Firemen. Oh, yes? Well, any good do something about knocking off nine inches of unnecessary nozzle? <laughs> knocking off what? Nine inches of unnecessary brass nozzle. See, the hose is heavy enough without the enormous nozzle on the end. Well, the point is this. No, the point is a nozzle. The boys are getting a bit burned up about it. 
The waiters wearing a mat. They want nine inches knocked off the end of their nozzles. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll talk. I'll talk to the head squirt. As a gravy, ta-da. Yes, you could get away with a lot in the forties, if necessary, under the banner of surrealism, which was big in the poetry world as well as in humour. To many people, after an exhausting war terminated by the colossal horror of the atom bomb, existence had become meaningless, or at least threatened by meaninglessness. I know you'll say I'm being fancy if I suggest that comedy, for a moment or two, shook hands with the coming spirit of Samuel Beckett. But well, listen to this. So I dashed into the station master's office and said to an old boy there, "What time is the next train to London?" He said, "If you look at the station clock when it arrives, you'll know before I do." <laughs> I said, really? He said, yes. And even then you'll be wrong. I said, why? He said, the clock's wrong. <laughs> I said, are you, uh, are you the station master? He says, no, I opt the guard to look out of the window. <laughs> I said, help him look out. I said, well, what do you see out the window? He said, nothing. I said, why not? He said, the bottom half of the window's boarding up. I said, well, why don't you look out of the top half? He said, I'm not tall enough. I said, well, uh, how tall are you? He said, I'm two feet one sitting down. I said, don't you ever stand up? He says, only when I'm tired. I said, well, that's at least original. I suppose when it's time for the train to pull out, you wave your whistle and blow a long blast on the flag. He said, no, no, we don't use the whistle. The engine driver's deaf. He can't hear it. I said, well, don't you wave the flag. He said, it's no use. I said, why? He says, the engine driver's colorblind. <laughs> and even if he wasn't, it wouldn't be any use. I said, why? He said, the flag's a black one. <laughs> I said, why is it black? He says, I've been cleaning my boots with it. <laughs> I said, does the guard know you clean your boots on his flag? He said, oh, yes. I said, isn't he annoyed? He said, oh, no. I said, why not? He says, he cleans his boots on it as well. <laughs> I said, well, how do you get the train started? He said, well, we usually send a little note along saying you may now start. <laughs> I said, well, that's very, very charming. I said, I suppose you write that in invisible ink. He said, no, I can't write. <laughs> I said, you can't write. I said, what about the engine driver? He says, oh, that doesn't bother him. I said, why not? He said, he can't read. Decades later, people were surprised when Max Wall was actually cast in Samuel Beckett plays. But there he was, dallying with nihilism and the theatre of the absurd in 1946. But that was one solo act. The continuity of comedy was carried on by the services shows, gradually shedding their battle dress and getting into civvies, and by the ever-rolling stream of Itmar. Foaming at the mouth had been left behind, and Tommy Handley had come to lord it over the infinitely adaptable realm of Tomtopia. New running characters had made themselves indispensable, like Tatty Mackintosh. Mr. Handley, can I ask you a question? Hello, my little Tatty Scone. What is it? I think Miss Hotchkiss wants to marry you. Don't be ridiculous, just because we wear the same kind of bootlaces. <laughs> Doesn't mean a thing. Ah, but do you know what she wears round her neck? What, besides that red bandage? <laughs> Has got a slice of potato to keep the rheumatism away? Oh, no. She's got a locket with a wee photo of you inside. 
But it's not much like you. Oh, that was cut out of the Radio Times. <laughs> I'm going to have a word with her anyway. If anybody's going to change their name to Handley, it's me. Oh, well, if that's the game, I'll change my name to Izzy Bond. <laughs> and in response to your request, I'll sing you a brand new ballad. I'm in love with two sweet <laughs> Molly Weir at full Caledonian warble as Tatty McIntosh. From an ancient Liverpool department store, blitzed during the war, came the name of Frisbee Dyke, which Handley slipped in as an improvisation on air. It stuck to Derek Guyler. Well, now from here, I'll take you to a nightclub. Compared to this, it's the complete antithesis. What's an antithesis? <laughs> now, the... <laughs> Did, eh? I said, what's an antithesis? Now listen, Hackins, hey. Uh, an antithesis. Well, it's a sort of a tithesis with an ant crawling up it. Fancy that? Yes. Here, aren't you the chap from Penzance? No. I'm a ship's engineer. Oh, you see a lot of the world, then. I do that. I'm sailing tomorrow from Liverpool. What, to New York? No, to New Brighton. I do it every day. <laughs> Fancy that, eh? Say, Tom, who was that foreigner? Well, I always call him Frisbee Dyke. <laughs> Why? Well, what else could I call him? <laughs> now, relax him. We'll have a nice Australian cocktail. What's that, honey? A glass of bitter with a wallaby in it. <laughs> I did it. Well, let's all have a drink. Tom, gentlemen, please. Who said that? Yeah. Frisbee Dyke. <laughs> Young Hattie Jakes making up the trio. And Derek Guyler claimed that Frisbee Dyke was the first ever example of a fully catarrhal Liverpool accent being used in broadcast entertainment. Liverpudlians like Arthur Askey, Rob Wilton and Tommy Handley himself being vocally sanitised by comparison. The old Mrs Mop had now gone, but there were still survivors from her era. Now i better look round this stall. It needs a complete spring clear-out. Bring the beer out. It's a good idea, Handley. Hello, Colonel. You look shocking. Have you been drinking Edgware Road whiskey? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, sir. <laughs> I say, Henley, I wish you'd stand still when you're talking to me. But I am standing still. That's what you think. Now, look. You've turned a somersault. What? And there's a lizard going into your breast pocket. Colonel, you've certainly made a comeback. <laughs> Look at that red wine stain on your shirt front. It looks like a map of Russia. Where have you come from? Trafalgar Square, sir. I danced around all the Christmas trees. Oh, trees? <laughs> I only saw one. That's the worst of being sober, sir. You only see things by half. I say, what about a drink? Listen, Colonel, with a head like yours, why don't you try a swim in the serpentine? Try a gin and turpentine. I don't mind if I do. All right, well, now you said that, perhaps you'll pipe down. Certainly, sir. To heal Leo. Leo? Who are you talking to? One of the lions from Trafalgar Square. <laughs> he follows me everywhere. Are you sure it isn't Harvey, the rabbit? <laughs> anyway. I don't see a lion. You don't see a lion, sir? No. Well, all I can suggest is you should take an aspirin. Oh, good day, sir. Good day, Colonel. <laughs>
Jack Train. And that, sadly, was Colonel Chinstrap's last dialogue with Tommy Handley in January 1949. In what proved his final show, Handley was still taking on new roles in the plot as scriptwriter Ted Kavanagh strove to refresh the character. I'm talking about a business proposition. No. I'm offering you a job that will bring a smile to the poor, tired faces in front of you. I'm trying to do that now. <laughs> and what a lot of tired faces, too. No, I mean a job in charge of a tea and coffee stall. What, a tea and coffee stall? Me, surrounded by hot dogs and pickles? You might at least have a go. What, me in my state of wolf? <laughs> no, Hutch, I won't do it. Not even if you went down on your mended knees. <laughs> oh, I'm so disappointed. <laughs> oh, no, no, don't give way, Hutch. Tell me she's crying like a pantomime horse out of one eye. <laughs> All right, Hutch, I'll do it. And I'll get Dr. Summerskill to open it and call it, uh, let me see now, a good sneak in for Snook. Snook, the tasteless austerity fish flesh and almost the only abundant comestible in 1949. That was the 310th programme. In place of the next came an announcement. Here is the Director General of the BBC, Sir William Haley. Ladies and gentlemen, we cannot tonight present it, Mark. Tommy Handley, that man, that humorous, ebullient, kindly man, around whose personality it was built and whose art held it together, is dead. For the men and women and children of this generation, to whom it ma meant something that no other show will ever mean, and who tonight hold Tommy Handley in grateful an affectionate memory, there will never be anyone quite like that man again. It's a rare public event that brings the DG to the microphone in that official capacity, and that in itself is a measure of Handley's importance to comedy and to the nation. And some measure of that kind is needed because, to tell the truth, not many champions of Itmar can be found within the BBC today. Only the other week a senior BBC person described the show to me as a load of catchphrases and punchlines held together by froth, which in a way it was. Itmar overall is in the unlucky historical position of being thought of not as the show that inspired post-war comedy, but the one from which post-war comedy escaped. But however hard it is for a modern ear to tune into Itmar's wavelength, we all accept that it sets standards of audience loyalty and affection which probably can't be surpassed. And running for ten years, it also gave future generations an idea of how long a successful show might be expected to sustain itself, given the willingness of writers and performers. So the death of Itmar left the topical field open, in the first instance to individual opportunists. They've finished the house now. They haven't taken the scaffolding away yet. They're going to wait till they get the wallpaper up just to make sure. See? <laughs> Yes. I went down to see the house the other day, though. The man what I used to work for when I was a painter, he, he built it, see? He's standing outside the house there like Julius Caesar surveying the ruins of Pompeii. Well, I'm looking... I don't expect you to laugh, but as long as I get the plug money. But uh, I said, oh, I'm going to laugh. It's all the matter, didn't it? The band is still laughing. Shove the money up. We're doing all right. Don't bother. <laughs> but uh, the thing is, I said, I don't like... Look, look at the staircase. He said, well, that's what you wanted. That's a winding staircase. I said, I know, but it's too much bother. Wind it up in the morning, wind it down again at night. <laughs> Never at a loss, Arthur English, the leading spiv, black marketeer or wide boy of the age. Wide boy was a literal description if you saw Arthur's padded shoulders and kipper ties. 
Innocent by comparison was the backdrop of waterlogged spa with Eric Barker in the lead. Here's a piece of Barker's topical spiel. See if anything about the reaction to it annoys you. Oh, by the way, how about that uh, viewer in South Africa who saw me quite plainly on his television set for a full minute? Wasn't that exciting? He, he was very excited too, apparently. And the BBC wrote back and explained that it wasn't natural and was really a freak reception, you know. And he, <laughs> he wrote back and said he could see it wasn't natural, but could he have a photograph of the freak that appeared? But <laughs> As if the BBC didn't have enough trouble. I mean, now the <laughs> Ministry of Fuel wanted to read the 8 o'clock news at 7.45 to get people out of bed earlier. A few minutes ago, I just met Stuart Hibbert, pouting. At least I thought he was pouting. Actually, he's busy taking bugle lessons in case they wanted to blow the rebellion at 6.30. <laughs> and uh, now here is Herr Crow, not only in his astrakhan coat, but also dressed up with a broken heart. Well, maybe it didn't bother you at all, but there are listeners so sensitive to audience reaction that that front row lady in the audience, who found everything funny, would have driven them up the wall. Persistent phantom laughers of that kind remain a problem to this day. It's said that one or two have even been bribed to stay away. Audience manipulation was itself a subject of comedy in the 40s. The American influence, by now, had produced more quiz format or question-and-answer shows, a trend deeply deplored by the How-To team under Stephen Potter and Joyce Grenfell. Their satirical show, How to Listen, which was, of course, a non-audience production, included the following... And now, welcome once more to that quiz wizard, our jovial host, Max McCutcheon! Hello there, folks. Hello, hello. Thank you, thank you. This is Mac McCutcheon wishing you lots of fun. Now, who's first tonight, eh? A charming young lady in a most becoming hat, if I may say so. <laughs> oh, my, oh, my. <laughs> and what is your name, young lady? Hmm? Jean Gledding. Jean Gledding. I dream of Jeannie with a nut brown hair. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> and where do you come from, Jean Gledding? Bexley Heath. Folks, this is my friend and your friend, Jean Gledding of Bexley Heath. <laughs> And what did you do in the war, Jean? I was in the ATS. Well done, Jean Gliddy. And what are you doing now? Well, I'm still in the ATS. The how-to team, including Derek Guiler, Roy Plumley and Joyce Grenfell, really expressing, I think, their belief in the superiority of written material to silly old improvised speech. Shortly afterwards, the third programme was introduced, and there they found the intellectual home they'd been looking for. On the light programme, meanwhile... Take it from here, don't go away when you can take it from here, why don't you stay and make Few radio successes hit on their maturest style straight away, and young Frank Muir and Dennis Norden had some wobbly weeks early on with Take It From Here. What they did have from the start on TIFH, T-I-F-H, was a high standard of tailoring in the script, full marks for neatness. Ladies and gentlemen, TIFH presents Focus on Leisure. <laughs> of people spend their leisure a greyhound racing. Let's listen to two enthusiasts discussing their favourite sport. How'd you get on Saturday? Did me lot. Not a winner. Good meeting. Terrible. Many there. Couldn't move. Like ruddy sardines. <laughs> what was the weather like? Pelting down. Soaked to the skin. Caught a shocking cold. Why don't you give up the dogs? Can't. It's the only enjoyment I got. <laughs> 
And though we're still several years before the advent of Ron and Eth, there were already set pieces well worthy of that later era. However, when one is young, leisure time is time for romance. In this glorious summer, what more idyllic picture than a boy and girl in a punt beneath the shady willows of a slow-moving stream? Nature boy is strange, enchanted nature boy. <laughs> oh, maybe this is just... Mavis, this is just like floating on a gondola through the streets of Vienna. <laughs> I feel quite a blade in this straw hat. I got it from my uncle, you know. He's a wet fish merchant. <laughs> Shall we have the sandwiches now? I brought along some cherries for afters. We can float a willow leaf down the stream and spit stones at it. <laughs> Oh, Mavis, Mavis, you look unbearably tantalising in that Tyrolean dirndl and black woolen stockings. <laughs> no wonder you provoked a comment from that man on the barge, though he might have phrased it better. <laughs> oh, Mavis, would that we could float on in this punt forever, but we'd better have it back by 4.20 or you lose your deposit. <laughs> If you heard Professor Edwin Karp, the fish mimic, in an earlier programme, you'll recognise Dick Bentley's voice there as a direct and linear descendant of Richard Haydn's professor. Reliable, durable post-war series, to use the terms in which heads of BBC departments inevitably tend to see them, were now digging in. Ted Ray, for example, in Raise a Laugh. Some people don't like punning titles, but that one was really irresistible. First lunch. Sausages again. Sausages? Oh, good, good. Oh, I love sausages. What a commotion. People rushing for sausages. Pardon me, sir. Why are all these people rushing for sausages? Oh, they're all meat now. They can't afford to put bread in them. Yes, if it wasn't the meat shortage, it was the bread dearth. About the only thing not in short supply was talent dying to make its way in radio comedy. The early Razor Laugh featured a young man who was just starting out doing voices. Entrance forward, please. Come on, here we are. Now, the first one here, we have Miss Miriam Pound of Turnham Green. I take her measurements. Hips, 36. Waist, 32. <clears throat> 38. <laughs> and weight, 112 pounds. <laughs> All right, no favoritism, please. Next contestant, would you step forward, please? Oh, may? Yes. <laughs> yes, what's your name? Crystal Jolly Bottom, you sold Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Take your microphone out of me suntan lotion. All right, now, now, now. Hip 72. Ooh. Waist Ooh. 94. Ooh. That's all. Here, aren't you going to measure me? No, I haven't got time. <laughs> What's your weight? 19 stone in my bathing cap. Have you made up your mind? Yes, I've made up my mind. Forty-one, it's million pound. Ladies and gentlemen, the winner is Crystal Jollybottom. What? Yes. You fool! Why did you give the prize to Miss Pound? She won at Blackpool, Brighton, Margate, and Cleethorpes. Why did you give first prize to Jollybottom? Because I followed Sir Stafford's example. What's that? I devalued the pound. <laughs> Peter Sellers as Crystal Jollybottom, a sort of quivering amalgam of all the traditional BBC Charlady characters, plus added gurgles from Sellers' beloved Finchley. 
Over and above the standard talents of a specific impressionist, Sellers had an unbeatable range of generic voices, vocal types, and it was mainly these that kept him in such constant employment, up to nine shows a week at the height of the Sellers' boom. It was an actor's rather than a comedian's range, and the standard for Sellers to match had been set quite recently, in Much Binding in the Marsh, where whole sequences were set aside to display the versatility of Morris Denham. Oh, look, there's Mr. Blake. Uh, morning, Mr. Blake. Ah, have a good Christmas. Oh, I'm already here over again. You go to the here and all. On the postman's knock. I see Mr. Blake's got some of the villagers to help him on his farm over Christmas. So he has. Morning, Picard. Good morning, dear boys. Have a good Christmas, Miss Klingbein. Yes, thank you, sir. <laughs> Happy New Year, Percy. Oh, uh, yes, yeah, isn't it? What? <laughs> uh, good morning, Mrs. Dimsdale. How's Irving? Oh, getting on nicely, thanks, sir. <laughs> good morning, Mr. Denham. Uh, oh, yes, good morning. <laughs> With Maurice Denham in residence, there wasn't much need for experiments in casting. He would do the lot. But a show where a slot in the cast sometimes fell vacant could do wonders in bringing on new talent. Such was the case with Educating Archie, of which a card in the BBC Archive Index remarks dryly, Archie Andrews, the star of the show, is a ventriloquist's dummy. Ventriloquism on radio, on the face of it... Well, that's the trouble. There is no face of it to see. But fortunately for the idea, the American vent, Edgar Bergen, had already proved it could work. My Marilyn, this is the day that we will wed. Oh, yes. <laughs> Hello, you poor losers, you. Yes. Charlie? Yes. So, so you're going to give up single bliss for a ball and chain? Yeah, yeah. And being chained to Marilyn is really going to be a ball. Dolly, yeah. <laughs> do you think, do you think that you're ready for marriage? Ready? Ready, man? Yeah. <laughs> I kicked a hole in the starting gate. Oh, I... <laughs> I say that Charles, old chap, I've heard about you and Marilyn Monroe, and uh, may I tender my gratuitous felicitations upon the advent of your nuptials? Well, I don't, I don't think it... Uh... What does that mean? <laughs> Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, proving in 1942 that what the eye doesn't see, the lips don't move, or something of the kind. I don't think Peter Bruff ever claimed to be the most immobile lipped of ventriloquists, but his piercing archy voice was perfect for radio, particularly in counterpoint with his loopy tutor, played by Robert Morton. Hello, Andrews. Good morning, sir. I'm looking forward to November the 5th, aren't you? Oh, rather. If there's one thing I like to see, it's the boys enjoying themselves. Oh, good. I it? want you to have fun, Andrew. Yes, but now... And I'm it... personally going to see that you have a rip-snorting time. No, it's a wonderful thing. Good. Well, can you spare a copper for the guy? No. And uh, now for the first... <laughs> uh, now, um, we'll take the first lesson. Oh, now, come on, sir. You must be able to spare a coffee. Now, look, Andrews, I'm not made of money. I mean, since I received my salary, I've had to take Agatha out five times. Well, that's a shilling gone. <laughs> a shilling, eh? Just one long round of pleasure, that's it. But in any case, Andrews, uh, have you got a guy? Oh, yes, yes, I've got everything arranged. Uh, now, this is the chair that we're going to put him in. Oh, that's splendid. Good. Now, would you mind trying it for size? Uh-uh. Oh, no. Now, Andrews, I can see what's in your mind. You want to collect coppers for the guy while I sit in the chair with a funny mask on. <laughs> I hadn't thought of a funny mask. <laughs>
As you can hear, Robert Morton contributed much to the persona that was later adopted by Derek Nimmo. Doing odd parts in the same series was an ex-RAF gang show hopeful called Tony Hancock. Here as a cinema manager, there's just the odd flash of the Hancock to come. I don't think you know anything about running a cinema at all. Oh, don't I? I'll have you know, young man, I was practically bored in the cinema. Oh? What was showing? Ben-Hur. It was during... <laughs> yes. yes, it was during the chariot race. <laughs> Archie, yes. Archie, stop annoying the man when he's trying to do his job. Leave him alone. Oh, that's all right, sir. I know how excited these youngsters are when they come to my cinema. <laughs> yes. They just love to see my double features. Uh, what have you got? Two heads? <laughs> yes, I use the other one for banging against the wall. Flipping kids. <laughs> the obligatory catchphrase. Another young man waiting for stardom to happen was doing solo spots on the likes of Variety Bandbox and managing to earn himself an unusual introduction. Time out now for lunacy. I noticed a considerable uproar among last week's Bandbox audience, which one inquiry I found was caused by a number of professional broadcasting goons who were taking a sort of busman's holiday and attending the programme. It may have been the first time the term goons was sneaked past the censor. They didn't like it upstairs, you know. Seacombe's act was a prototype goon show in miniature. So, pausing only to wipe some jelly deal off her chin and practically slipping a bottle of gin into the basket, Little Red Riding Good sets out. Her shortest path is through the woods, but she's heard there's a wolf in the woods. So being no fool, she takes the path through the woods. <laughs> sure enough... <laughs> Sure enough, hardly as she started on an expectant way, when out springs the wolf. Red covers her face and screams, <laughs> Then she uncovers her face, and the wolf screams, <laughs> Hearing the screams, a nearby woodcutter rushes to the spot, and after a short, sharp struggle, <laughs> short, sharp struggle, rescues the wolf. <clears throat> <laughs> The wolf runs off, leaving Red to say sweetly to the woodcutter, I wash you to it to pay a big head. We leave Seacombe as the lurgy begins to take hold. Full case history and prognosis next time. Ah, but the woodcutter's a simple man and asks, Duh, where are you going, Red? And she says, I'm not going Red anywhere, stupid. I'm on my way to visit my granny in her woodland cottage. Have you seen anything of her lately? And he says... Uh, no, she keeps her key in the keyhole. <laughs> you are listening to the Comedy Corner here on Coast Access Radio 104.7 FM. Now here is an episode of Round the Horn, entitled The Rocket Sight in Haiti. Kenneth Horn was not only in show business, but also a successful businessman. He was sales director of Triplex Glass, and subsequently held many directorships, including that of managing director of British Industries Fair, the forerunner of the CBI. He ran the two careers, broadcasting and big business, side by side. But fate caught up with him in 1958 when he had a stroke which partially paralysed him. Horn, however, was a man with a will of iron, fought his way back to reasonably good health, and by 1959 was ready to go to work again. Doctors told him that he had a choice, to give up business or show business. He chose to go with the latter and embarked on the radio series Beyond Our Ken. Beyond Our Ken was the forerunner of Round the Horn and had the same cast recruited largely from Western Theatre. Kenneth Horn's ability to blend a team together was demonstrated here as it had been as a managing director. With Round the Horn, Kenneth early on offered to contribute and his comments and suggestions were always welcome. 
But once the show had got over its teething problems and the patterns created by Marty Feldman and me were set, Kenneth Horne was content to sit back and enjoy the luxury of not having to do anything but savour the weekly cascade of jokes. Being an inventive man, he, he must have wanted to contribute, but being also an astute man, he knew better than to interfere with what was clearly a success. His philosophy was, if it ain't bust, don't fix it. But sometimes the urge was too great, and he'd volunteer a solo piece about, for instance, force meat, whatever that was, or a patriotic song consisting entirely of made-up words, which, when sung with feeling, gave the impression of being a hymn of praise to Queen and Empire. Apart from the laughs, the atmosphere round the horn was one of mutual respect and great affection. This, more than anything, was Kenneth Horne's contribution. He loved us all. In return, we loved him. As did the audience. Now, for the young in heart and weak in the head, it's Round the Hall. The story so far, old, greasy, mad Rasputin Betty Marsden. <laughs> he of the dirty, matted hair and monk's habit, which, which we needn't elaborate on. <laughs> Genuflected in front of the Tsar, son of Ivan the Terrible, Pertwee, the even more terrible. <laughs> Father of all the Russias, but he pleaded the headaches. <laughs> By his side sat his two daughters, haughty, wayward, tomboy Kenneth Williams. <laughs> Shy, demure Anastasia Paddock. She of the arch smile and fluted transept. The Tsar inclined his head towards Rasputin as the mad monk whispered his demand for money. But Pertwee the Terrible shook his head as if to say, you can't get a silk purse out of a czar's ear. <laughs> Rasputin's face convulsed with insane rage, and pointing a trembling finger at the czar, he screamed out the vile words. My name's Kenneth Horne. <laughs> and that was Douglas Smith, of whom the police say, foul play cannot be ruled out. <laughs> now... For the answers to last week's quiz, complete these song titles. Well, the first one was, I'm going to sit right down and... <laughs> well, the answer was, write myself a letter. There were several other suggestions that were not only unseemly, but physically impossible. <laughs> And if you don't believe me, athletic of Chatham, well... Uh... <laughs> you sit right down and try it. <laughs> the last title you had to complete was I Dream Of. Well, Mr. J.G. of Rotherhithe, I've looked up what you apparently dream of in Freud, and it seems that you have a morbid fear of being brutally assaulted by a giant rabbit covered in jam. <laughs> Now, uh, don't worry, Mr. J.G., it's a very common dream indeed. Edwin Braden has it often. Oh, him, great airy fool. Yeah. <laughs> but the real answer to the song title is, I dream of Jeannie with the light brown hair, which I should have thought was a great improvement of, I dream of being brutally assaulted by a giant rabbit covered in jam. 
None of which brings us to the next part of this farrago, where we once again extend a welcome to ex-king dictator Fidel Gruntfatuk of Peasmoldia. Ah, I am no longer dictator Gruntfatuk. No, but to wit and viz, plain brother Gruntfatuk. You see, I've had the voices again. Just after the pubs closed last night, I was I was cooling my fevered brow against the window of the butcher's shop when I had a vision. It took the form of a pig's head in the window. An unearthly piping issued from its lips, and it said, Go forth, Grant Fattock, my child. Throw off your trappings and gird up your loins. At least I think that's what it said. It was very hard to distinguish. It had an apple in its mouth. Yeah. Must have been not bad for a pig's head. No, no. no, That's right. So I threw off my rich apparel, viz. My army surplus vest and the bowler that gave me up the prisoner's welfare. And now I'm dressed simply as you see me in the attire of my chosen calling, e.g. gaffer of the Grant Fattock Order. Yes, now what are your aim? They are simple to comprehend, my child. My child. <laughs> What, what I mean is, any twit can catch on. <laughs> yes. You see, our aims are to reach a better and fuller life through brotherly love. And here with me is the serene high priestess of our order, Sister Buttercup. Oi, slobberchops, come up here. Come up. Come give Mr. Horn the traditional mystical salutation of our calling. Hello, cheeky face. <laughs> Oh, that's very mystical, that is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, she's got the manners all right. The manners are mystical pig. Hey, would you mind? Shut your row up. (laughs) How could you go about preaching brotherly love up the pub with her lurching about, breathing milk stout all over the customers (laughs) and ogling all the illegible males of the opposite sex? Who? Who have I ogled? Name one. Mr. Tramwicket from the horsemeat shop. I've seen you. I've seen you ogling him. If I didn't ogle him, you wouldn't have no Sunday joints. All right, all right, all right. I'll give you a special dispensation regarding him. Oh, you have done? Yes. Many times. (laughs) Many Oh, forgive us, Mr. Orr. We're just having one of those eternal air-splitting wrangles that tend to split our followers into two camps. Well, naturally, you wouldn't want your followers split up. No, no. especially no. seeing as how I've only got one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> As my brother-in-law, Nemesis Thrupp, who unfortunately is not able to honour us with his presence today as he's been remanded for a medical examination. <laughs> Now, now, to, uh, to sum up, if I may interrupt... Sum your, up, yes. yes your yes. sect believes in poverty, abstinence and good works. Yes, that is the nub and the gist of the whole brouhaha in a nutshell. And so we must be away now at the flesh pots of the great metropolis, spreading the word to whomsoever will heed us. Spreading yes. the word, you say? Yes, Mr. Horn, and the word is Rumpelstiltskin. That's it, Rumpelstiltskin. And what is the, is the mystical significance of that? Nothing, no. It's the name of horse running in the 330 at York. <laughs> Come on, Sister Buttercup, gird up your loins. <laughs> Very 
Now, to present Kenneth Horne, the man whose last performance was nominated for the Golden Palm at the Cannes Film Festival. Kenneth Horne, special agent. This is Brian Horrocks. I'm speaking to you from New York. My secretary, Miss Golightly, and I have been at UNO all day. <laughs> Now, look, it's, it's terribly urgent. Can you get out here quickly? It'll take some time. Oh, that's all right. We'll probably be going on till the small hours. <laughs> the Security Council are very worried. Now, look here, Horn. What do you know about a man who calls himself Professor Corn Posture? Corn Posture. Oh, well, he's the world's leading expert on ballistic missiles. He won last year's Nobel Prize for Physics, and he's head of the science department at Yale. Um, why this interest, sir? Well, he asked me to lend him five shillings. Oh. <laughs> All right, now take the next flight from London Airport and report to me at the UNO building in New York. And so, pausing only to throw my baggage into the car and drive her home to her mother. <laughs> I was on my way to New York. Ah, oh, Horn. Ah, uh, Brown Horrocks. We've got some photographs here that are worrying us a bit. Here, have a look through nice. them. Oh, 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 oh. oh, good heavens, surely Miss Golightly could catch a cold doing that. <laughs> oh, show me. Oh, oh, oh. I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong photos. <laughs> These were taken on the MI5 out into the South End. <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, these are the ones I wanted you to look at. Aerial photos of Haiti... What do you make of these? Well, it looks like giant empty milk bottles about 200 feet tall, I'd say. What do you think they're being used for? Uh, surely it's obvious. Firing giant rockets. Oh. We've had, uh, <laughs> had two experts studying these photographs. Chap from ballistics and a milkman. <laughs> and they both agree. Secret rocket installations. And notice this small figure in the photograph here, yeah. standing beside one of the bottles. Good heavens, I'd recognize that inscrutable oriental face anywhere. Isn't it... Gladys Lustgirdle? No. <laughs> Dr. Chuen Ginsberg, get out there and find out what's going on and stop it. And with that, Brown Horrocks crossed his legs, dotted his eyes, folded his arms along the perforated line and put them in a stamped addressed envelope. <laughs> the interview was over. I knew what I had to do. Two days later, I was splashing happily in Haiti. The air came rushing back to my lungs as I surfaced. I removed my snorkel and flippers and lay back in the water, letting the gentle waves lap around my body. Suddenly, the dusky head of a native surfaced near mine. Clenched in his teeth was a glittering knife. One question was uppermost in my mind. What was he doing in my bath? <laughs> He spoke. Pass along the bath, man. <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing here? I'm a sponge diver. Well, <laughs> you won't find any in my bath. I used a flannel. Why don't you try the sea? I'm not going in there, man. I can't swim. <laughs> I had a sixth sense. Call it what you will. But somehow I felt his story didn't quite add up. Suddenly, he came for me, his knife flashing. We grappled. <laughs> <laughs> and then... With one last despairing lunge, I managed to pull out the plug. <laughs> that had been too close for comfort. After all, it was only a hip bath. But somehow, 
Someone was trying to get rid of me. Who? I leapt out of the bath and hurried to a waterfront bar I knew. Ah! I hurried back and put some clothes on. <laughs> Ten minutes later, I lounged against the bar, sipping up planter's punch. A planter next to me was sipping mine. <laughs> I needed a smoke. I pulled out my pig iron cigarette case and pulled out a filter-tip pig specially rolled for me by the little pork butcher in German Street. I puffed at it reflectively. Then suddenly I felt something hard in the small of my back. I turned and found myself staring down the small blue muzzle of a small blue dog. <laughs> it bit me in the ankle and scampered off. I followed it. Soon I came to a small clearing in the jungle. And there stood a rude hut. Outside squatted a native carving a rude figure. I spoke to him. He made a rude gesture in the direction of the hut. <laughs> and I knocked on the door. Come in. Ah! Ah, Mr. Horn. Ah, Chew. Well? Ah! Sir, you have discovered my plan. I'm... I'm not saying this. Absolute rubbish. <laughs> A man with my training and background. I'm a dramatic actor. Oh, yes. I want a part with some body in it. Once more, unto the breach, dear friends. You see. Once more, close the wall up with our English dead. Dead. That's what I want. I've been trained for it. I want to wear tights. <laughs> I've got the legs for it. The legs, I've got good firm calves, I have. Go on. Have a feel of my calves. No, <laughs> I'd sooner not if you don't mind. Look, we're getting behind. That's all you want me for, getting cheap laughs. <laughs> I'm an artiste. I'm not lowering myself. Come on, I'm... Ken, this is embarrassing. Embarrassing? It's me that's embarrassed. It's all right for you. You get good meaty parts with a bit of class in them, oh, you would do. You mind? Yes, you and you, Paddock, you keep well in with Kenneth Orne, don't you? Don't yes, you do. <laughs> I do Any part of a bit time. of culture, you Stop get it. I've been old bank, I have, just because no. I'm a grammar school boy. I've oh. fought my way out from the gutter. I could have been a star. I Somebody. Been... I could have been a magazine. Somebody I... talk to him. Burn a feather under his nose or something. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do the part, Ken, if you like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'll take, yeah. I'll take... <laughs> Honestly, I will. I don't mind, yeah. I, I take a good Japanese and I, I could do it. Honestly, I could. Let me do it, Miss Horn. Get rid of him. He doesn't like you. He's never liked you. I'll do the part. Come yes, on. you would, wouldn't you? You would, yes. Yes, you'd do anything to get a bit of attention to you. That's it, you see. You all hate me. I've never been loved in this show. I've never been loved. No. I've not been loved. Nobody loves of me. Of course we do. No, you don't. Yes, we all do. <laughs> we all do. Well, say it then. We, we all, all love you. you. Uh, Eddie Braden didn't say it. Make him say it. <laughs> Edwin, Edwin. Oh, please, well, man. please. I love you. <laughs> there wasn't any real warmth in it. Uh, great airy hypocrite. <laughs> what about the producer? Look at him up there in that control box. Look at him glowering at me. Make him say it. John, would you mind? Oh, all right. I love you. The whole BBC loves you. Now, will you get on with the show? Please. Please. That's better. Ah, so, Mr. Hahn. <laughs> you have 
have discovered my plan, namely to send up giant rockets filled with 300 tons of cold porridge, which, <laughs> which I shall then explode all over the world. But why? Why? What else can you do with 300 tons of cold porridge? You'll never get away with it. Take that. Uh-huh. And that. Uh-huh. And that. Uh, no, thanks. I've already got two of that. <laughs> swingers as opposed to people of my generation who just let their braces dangle. <laughs> now, first, trends in society. What are the top people up to? Well, here to give us the inside gossip is ace society columnist Jocelyn Pettibone. Well, this is all very hush-hush and off the cuff, you understand, but it's the talk of smart circles, the dem of the uh, Henrietta siblings... <laughs> ...over four feet long. <laughs> Well, of course, the groom was livid and... <laughs> round her ankles. <laughs> With the Duke of Celebreth, his stable boy, and... Uh... <laughs> so, of course, they had to scratch it. Yes. Oh, very exciting. Well, of course, they denied it. Really? <laughs> yes, well, I must be away now, as I promised the Duchess of Moat that I would... <laughs> In the hothouse at Kew. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Jocelyn Pettiburn, for giving us that glimpse of the life of the upper set. And give the give the Duchess, will you, my warmest <laughs> own natural surroundings. Thank you. <laughs> now. And now trends in the theatre. The plays of the thirties are still being revived. Here is an excerpt from the poignant third act of Bitter Laughter. Starring Dame Celia Molestrangler and Binky Huckerback. Oh, you startled me coming through the window like that. I had to come. Oh, darling. Darling Fiona. Oh. oh, 
are you? Are you glad, Charles? About us, I mean. Glad? Yes, Fiona. Enchantedly, heart-quenchingly, <laughs> luxuriously, voluptuously glad, and yet somehow sorry. <laughs> About us, I mean. And you, Fiona, are you sorry? Grief-riddenly, wretchedly, hand-wringingly, utterly, utterly sorry. And yet somehow glad. <laughs> I know. I know you know. I know you know. know. Yes, I know. Oh, darling Fiona, how I hate having to meet you like this. Secretly, furtively, lurkingly, clandestinely, for a few snatched, sweet, sad, madcap, heart-twitteringly, rib-thumpingly, bewitching moments of blissful pain. Oh, painful bliss. How true. (laughs) How terribly, terribly true. And yet... How false. <laughs> How true. Oh, what's the use, Fiona? These trite, meaningless, empty, vacuous, pointless phrases can't convey what I feel in my heart. I sensed that. I sensed you sensed it. I sensed you sensed I sensed it. Yes, I sensed it. I know. I know you know. I know you know. <laughs> yes, I know. That's the marvelous thing about us. We don't need words. No. <laughs> I must go now, darling. Goodbye. And shall I... Shall I see you again? Answer, yes, Charles. For pity's sake. Answer, yes. Yes. When I come to clean the windows again... A tremendous tour de overacting that was. <laughs> and now trends in music. The time once again to welcome that picturesque homespun folksy twit, <laughs> rambling Sid Rumpo. Hi, Mary Down, Crumple Diddle I Do, and other colourful affectations. Well, me dearie, oh, in the past week I've been a frolicking around, uh, listening to the simple country folk a warbling their colourful ditties and a cleaning them up for getting them past the censor, oh. <laughs> Cheer up, cheer up, poor Tom's gone away, oh. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Now, um, what are you going to sing for us this week, Rambling uh, Sid? Tis a grummet tinker song from the bogs of old Ireland. <laughs> and it's sung by the itinerant peddlers of their parts as they lurk in the peat bogs, tinkering their grummets. <laughs> I suppose they don't have television. Here's a courting song sung by a young tinker to his lighter love as he plights his truth. He sings to her, If you will give me all your love, then I shall give to thee jewels and perfumes and a ribbon for your hair and an old pair of boots what belong to my granny. <laughs> they'll need resoling, but they'll do your treat for getting in the cold. <laughs> As he goes, he sings this song. <clears throat> Sing Turlaye for the tinker's life from Cork to Old Tralee. Oh. 
for I will give thee pots and pans if you'll come a tinkering with me, ho. <laughs> Where the tumble down tick and a rooney o day sing trost up a trost up a fall dear old idol and I'll treadle my crumple for many years. <laughs> If I don't get a stitch in my side-o, side-o, side-o. If I don't get a stitch in me side-o. And thank you, Rambling Sid. Now, last week, a maiden aunt wrote to me to say she was coming to London on a visit and would I get her a couple of seats for something in the West End. So I went along to a new ticket agency that's just opened in Chelsea. Boner Seats. <laughs> and I popped in to see what they had. Hello, anybody there? Oh, hello, I'm Julian. This is my friend, Sandy. <laughs> You want the bonus seats? We have them. <laughs> and what can I do for you? Well, I want of you to get me a couple of tickets for the West End show. How about Little Me? Yes, how about Little You? <laughs> Walking here and just demand seats for a show, can you, Jules? Of course he can't. I mean, no. we're booked out. Look, I've got crosses all over me seating plan. <laughs> well, here's some that are not marked. Well, now, yeah. can't I have that one? Yes, if you don't mind playing the bassoon in the orchestra. <laughs> well, what have you got? Oh, how about as you like it in the open air? <laughs> or you've got your old bit. Henry V and Vi. <laughs> Henry and Vi, let's have a look. That's Henry the Sixth. Oh, I told you, Joe. <laughs> anyway, when we saw it, we wondered which one was Vi. There you are. <laughs> of course, we might be able to fit you in for Hamlet. He don't want that. Don't he? Of course he don't. What about an opera, then? Yeah. Do you think you'd enjoy Cozy Van Tutti? Mozart, please yourself. We only fix the seats. <laughs> Anyway, that'd be too eyebrow for you. Be over your head. I've got, got it. He's got, got it. He's got it. I've got the very yeah. thing. He's got the very thing. Drama, yeah. movement, and the best acting in London. Well, it sounds wonderful. What is it? All in wrestling. Oh! That was round the horn. Starring Kenneth Horne with Kenneth Williams, Hugh Paddock, Betty Marsden and Bill Pertwee. On the musical side, you heard the Fraser Hayes Four and Edwin Braden and the Hornblowers. The script was written by Barry Took and Marty Feldman and the show is produced by John Simmons.
You have been listening to the Comedy Corner here on Coast Access Radio 104.7 FM. That's all for this week, folks. Until I speak to you again next week, this is Graham Stevens saying, keep smiling. We've got some half-price crack ties, some miles and miles of carpet tiles, TVs, deep freeze, and David Bowie LPs, pool games, gold chains, wuss names, and head push, and Trevor Francis track suits from a mush and shepherd's bush, 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 bush. No income tax, no VAT, no money back, no guarantee. Black or white, rich or poor, we'll cut prices at a straw. This program is made with assistance from New Zealand On Air for radio broadcast and through the accessmedia.nz website. Thank you, New Zealand On Air.